0: This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Good morning, Trinity Church. Jeff Heiser has a beard. I'm wearing a sports coat. I mean, what's going on in quarantine? We're losing our minds. Here we are. It's, uh, it's good to be with you. In this introduction, I just want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Psalm 2 or have your bulletin because these sermons aren't just inspirational moments. We are trying to explain and exposit God's Word, and so you'll enjoy it more if you have Psalm 2 in front of you. So let me begin uh, with some words of introduction as we get into this text. Um, Imagine uh, you are in the first century with Jesus, and Jesus is going around claiming to be the world's rightful king, and he turns to you, and he looks you in the eyes, and he says, come, take my yoke. It's easy. My, my burden is light. Why in the world? Would this man who's claiming to be your king tell you to take his yoke? You know what yokes are, don't you? Yokes are like those apparatuses that farmers put on their animals to do all the heavy lifting, right? I mean, yokes seem awful. Yokes are heavy. Why is this king asking you to put on a yoke? Well, Psalm 2 is going to help us understand this king. because Psalm 2 is going to introduce to us the ideal monarch. Now, we don't know much about kings and queens because we live in a democracy. So it's interesting, Aristotle, who wrote pretty extensively on political theory, he says, look, there's basically three kinds of governments. You have a monarchy, which is a king or queen. You have an oligarchy, which is ruled by the wealthy. And then you have a democracy, which is ruled by the masses. And of course, democracies are great for protecting against tyranny, But let's be honest, a little real talk here, nothing gets done, tons of red tape, bureaucracy. Uh, So Aristotle goes on to say, you know what the best kind of government is? It would be a benevolent king. A benevolent king. Why? Because he can act quickly, he can act powerfully, and if he's benevolent, he's good and trustworthy. Psalm 2 is going to introduce us to that kind of king. Now, last week we studied Psalm 1, and in Psalm 1 we learned about the two ways or the two paths. Well, in Psalm 2, the, the metaphor is going to change. Now, the governing metaphor is war. And so the question is uh, what side are you on? Now, there, instead of two paths, there are two sides. What side? are you on? And Psalm 2 is meant to be poetry for the people to generate loyalty to the right side with the king. Now, because we're modern people and don't live under a monarchy, it, we have to get our brains a little bit around, uh, around what kings are, especially the kings of Israel. So uh, again, let me just use a little bit more of this introduction for a little bit of historic context In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God is speaking to David and making him the king. And he enters into what we call the Davidic covenant. I want you to listen to these words that God speaks to David. They're so formative for how kings of Israel understood themselves. God says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. Who shall come from your body and I, not you, I am going to establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And God says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. All right, Are you seeing this? So God and king are now father and son. And then he continues, God says, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, your throne Shall be established forever. Now, I want you to notice just two quick things. The kings of Israel were called the Son of God, right? That's the first thing I want you to notice. And the second thing is is that kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, but no kingdom lasts forever except this one, apparently. Obviously, we are talking about a different kind of king and a different kind of kingdom. But if uh, you're hearing this, you might be prone to saying, who cares? I don't have a king. I live in a democracy. I can barely handle American presidents. I don't know our governors. Who cares? They only, kings only bring heavy yokes. They take and they take, and they make their subjects feel small, I guess. If that's you, then you need Psalm 2, just like I do. We need this song to reshape our emotions now, if you are a, a note taker, uh, we're going to look and evaluate Psalm 2 under four categories. From verses 1 through 3, you'll have God's enemies. And then from verses 4 through 6, you have God's perspective. And then verses 7 through 9, you have God's promise. And then verses 10 through 12, God's invitation. And in fact, you'll see those are natural breakups. Your translators probably helped you out there. So God's enemy, perspective, promise and invitation. All right, with that introduction, let's get right into God's very words. Here now, Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but God's word endures forever, forever, forever. May he add to the reading of his word. Amen. Amen. When My kids are a little bit older now, but when they were younger, we would read poetry out loud, and so I bought a book by Shel Silverstein. I don't know if you remember him, like where the sidewalk ends, or the new kid on the block. Anyway, I like Shel Silverstein quite a bit. My kids like him, and you know why? Because he's simple, and he rhymes, and it's like about my level for poetry. It's great. I have been thinking, I wish all poetry were as simple as Shel Silverstein, but it's not Psalm 2 is actually hard poetry so it needs a little bit of explaining. We kind of need to understand who's talking and what's going on in each section. So let's begin at the at the beginning first. In verses 1 through 3, what you see are God's enemies planning and they're talking. And not only are they talking but they're complaining. And the question is, like, what's the rub? I mean, what are they so upset about? Look there in verse three, they say, they a climax with them saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords. Now, to understand what's being said there, that bursting of cords, you have to understand a little bit about vassal kingdoms. All right, I'm not trying to get too scholarly here, but. Back in the, na- in the ancient days, in the old days, when a new empire would come upon a land, the, the new king wouldn't just conquer and remove the old king from their throne. Often what they would do is they would say, the, the new king, the more powerful king, would say, hey, king, I'm going to let you stay on your throne, and you can rule your people, but here are the terms. You will pay allegiance to me. I'll collect some taxes from you, right? And I'll provide a little bit of protection for you. So, The the existing king becomes a vassal of the big king. So he's still the king, like little K king, but he is a vassal. He's still under the authority of the big king. So what we're seeing in verses 1 through 3, in Israel, there are all these little kingdoms that have this relationship with the king of Israel. But now they're saying, all these guys are getting together, looking around, and they're saying, hey, I don't like the king. I'm, I'm done with him. His burden is heavy. His yoke is awful. I don't want to be under his authority. I don't like this king. Now, that's verses one through three. Now we move to verses four through six to hear God's perspective. So now, after the nations say their peace, God is going to say his peace. And what exactly is God's perspective? Because in verse four, you'll see that God starts laughing. You're like, what is so funny? I could summarize this by the name of the 1970s Broadway musical entitled, Your Arms Are Too Short to Box with God, right? So these kings uh, don't actually understand the absurdity of what they want, right, of their plans. You'll see there in verse 6, God responds. He says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, In other words, God is who put the king in place. Therefore, to reject the king is tantamount to rejecting God himself, right? So your problem is not just with the king. Your problem is with God himself. And guess what? Your arms are too short to box with God. Now, I don't know if even by explaining what's going on here, if that feels remote. Certainly, we don't live in a place where we have a king Um, Let me see if I can't sort of modernize the sentiment. Modern people are prone to saying something like this. I am spiritual. I'm a spiritual person, but I'm not religious. Now, have you heard that? You've heard that. I'm sure you have. When people say I'm spiritual but not religious, I totally understand why they would say something like that. Like I'm actually quite sympathetic. So many awful things have been done in the name of religion, and it's awful. And here at Trinity, we will not defend any of that. Of course, we will call a bad thing a bad thing, period. We don't care what label you're putting on it. But here's the problem. The abuse of a thing doesn't negate its proper use, right? And so what people are saying when they say, I want to be spiritual without uh, religion, what they're saying is, I want the benefits of God without the rule of God, right? I want the benefits of the king without the rule of the king. And this is significant because Jesus He would go around teaching, talking about the the, the kingdom of God coming near, claiming to be the world's rightful king, and he says, listen, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father. No one gets God. No one gets spirituality except through me. You can't have true spirituality except through Jesus. You don't get the benefits without the rule, you see. Now, so, so so far, what we've seen in Psalm 2 is the first three verses show God's enemies. These kings, they're plotting. They want to get out from underneath the king. Then we see in verses 4 through 6, God's perspective, right? And, and what is God saying? He's saying, hey, listen, to reject the king is to reject me. Don't box. Your arms are too short to box with me, right? And now, we're going to get to uh, verses 7 through 9. This is God's promise. Now, do you remember um, when Jesus is, was baptized? Of course, we read it in our New Testament reading. Jesus came up from Nazareth, met his cousin, John the Baptist, at uh, the River Jordan. And uh, Jesus says to John, He's like, Hey, come over here. You know, Jesus, uh, John the Baptist is kind of an eccentric figure, right? He's eating locusts and he's not wearing really trendy clothes or anything. Nevertheless, Jesus says, Come here, cuz, and baptize me. And as Jesus is coming out, of uh, the waters in the river Jordan, the voice from heaven says, This is my son with whom I am well pleased. In other words, this is the king. This is why we actually call Jesus Jesus Christ. Christ is not a last name. Remember, I try to remind everyone it is a title, it means anointed, king. Christ Jesus is king. Jesus. Now, in Psalm two, in verses seven through nine, this king is thinking back on the appointment and the words of God to him. Look there in verse seven. The king says, "I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, "You are my Son. Today I have begotten you." In other words, you are the king, and I am the king maker, right? But actually, there's even more than that going on. God is giving to this king a gift, an inheritance of all of the nations, the whole world. Look there at verse eight. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So follow this a little bit. This king doesn't simply want to rule a little bit of real estate in Palestine. This king wants to rule the whole world. It's actually been given to him by God. And then in verse 9, poetically, but extremely harshly, it describes this king's total and utter authority. Now, I know that, that language in verse nine, it's kind of hard to, for us to swallow to sort of assimilate as modern people. So how, how does this make sense? Why the harsh language? And what I wanna do is I wanna bring back to you, remember the governing metaphor here is war. And this war is not just between, um, it's not just between one nation and another. This is a war between good and, and evil, and evil will absolutely 100% be subdued and crushed and ended. Now, even as I say that, I know that, that language is kind of hard for us for, as modern people. And there's kind of two reasons why the language, this poetry, um, is, makes us uneasy. One of them is, as modern people, we don't actually believe in evil anymore right? I mean, evil is just the social construct that comes from past ancient cultures that inappropriately binded our consciences, but there is no evil. There's disagreements, you know, there's differences, but there's no, there's nothing intrinsically called evil. And so to like smash evil, like that would be very uncomfortable for us. But there's another reason why the language is hard for us. And it's because when we think about kings, like our collective imagination, we think of things like, really dark times like the Crusades, right? That's, that's how we imagine like a king coming upon things. But I wonder if our metaphors and our imagination is so limited that it's keeping us from understanding this. I mean, what if we could think of it more like Braveheart or Lord of the Rings? Like for Braveheart, for instance, William Wallace. Do you remember him? What made him like such an inspirational leader? It— no, it wasn't the blue paint, right? It's not the blue paint. It's that like if you have like one set of warriors on one side and the other the other ba- uh, warriors on the other side, and they're about to go into this battle. William Wallace wasn't just like sending his peons to go fight his battles for him. Man, he was always leading the charge and fighting for his people. He was the first one to go. Or like Aragon in Lord of the Rings, you have like the orcs on this side, and then you have like the sons of men on this side. And Aragon didn't just send his guys. He went and fought on their behalf. And it, it inspires us, right? It, it's a different vision of a king that captures our imagination, But even, there's another reason why, because why, again, the language is hard. When we think about kingdoms conquering other kingdoms, what we think of is like this nation coming upon another nation and just taking and taking and raping and pillaging and stripping the land of all of its resources. But I want you to remember that this kingdom is different. When this kingdom comes upon a new kingdom, it doesn't take and take. It gives, and it gives, and it brings flourishing and wholeness and reconciliation and peace. This is a different kind of kingdom. That's how come it is so significant that in the New Testament, Jesus, the king, Jesus Christ, he would say, I have come that they may have life and have life abundantly. He is a giver. He is a giver. This is a different kind of king. All right, now this gets us to the very last section of Psalm 2. So, of course, we have God's uh, perspective of the enemies trying to free up under the rule of this king. The second part, uh, God saying, that king is my agent. I put him there. Don't box with me. Then we have, of course, this third section, verses uh, 7 through 9. We see this promise of this inheritance of all of the nations, the kingdom coming upon all of the nations and his rule. And then we have God's invitation, invitation. Now listen, when I first joined the Air Force and I went to basic training, the very first thing they taught us to do was marching, how to march. Y'all know what marching is? It's when a group of people are all in the same step together. The main tool that they gave us to learn how to march were songs called jodies. Jodies are these really interesting things. They're certain songs that help everyone get on the right step, right? So everyone is landing their left foot at the exact same time, and the songs are giving us a rhythm. Now, that's not the only thing that these songs did. Not only are they keeping us on, in rhythm and on step with one another, but we're singing about stories of heroism, We're singing stories of valor and war and courage and pride. And the more we sang these songs, we were in step with one another. But the more we gave ourselves to these virtues, that's actually how this poetry is supposed to work, so that we would give ourselves to this ideal king and these virtues. Look there in um, verse 11, because this psalm is going to end with an invitation, it says verse 11 serve the lord with fear rejoice with trembling kiss the sun now like i know what kissing is and i know what the sun is what is kiss the sun again it means pay homage give your loyalty to the king and why why should you do this why should you give yourself to this because there is no refuge from this king there is only refuge in this king. Look there at verse 12. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Do you believe that? Do you believe like being under the yoke of Jesus taking it provides blessedness? Does his yoke feel light? Because I can tell you if you're understanding this king correctly or not, if you feel like his burden is easy and his yoke is light or heavy, right? I can tell if you're understanding him correctly based on your feeling. Do you feel like you just want to be free from this king sometimes? Like, I, I, I know how to have a happy life. God, take your yoke away from me. You're keeping me from the things I really want. Does it feel like Jesus is a tyrant? Like he's taking away your freedom Let me just end with this thought. When we think about freedom, there is negative freedom and then there's positive freedom. As sort of modern people, we're always talking about negative freedom. And negative freedom is just freedom from any restraints, right? Nobody tells me what to do. I'm free. I do what I want. No one tells me what to do. There's no restraints on my life. That's negative freedom. The Bible is so not interested in negative freedom It's interested in positive freedom. Positive freedom is the freedom to be able to achieve what you were made for, enabling you to do more, cultivating greatness in you. The classic example of positive freedom is a pianist. A pianist, my son, uh, Micah, a few years ago, he started playing piano. So what did he do? He had to yoke himself to an instructor. And he had to play hours every single day, yoking himself to this guy, playing every day, disciplining himself and working. He has to say no to other things and say yes to this. He has to give himself to it. But guess what? Now my home is filled with beauty. He plays amazing riffs from La La Land and like Hans Zimmer, you know, movies, uh, music from movies. And it's wonderful. And now when I look at my son play piano, I think to myself, I'm not free in the way he is. Man, he is free to do things and explore and do things with himself that I could never do. But he took a yoke upon himself and it produced a deeper freedom, a freedom that I don't have indeed. That's what Jesus, your king, wants to do. When he asks you to take his yoke, it's producing a deeper freedom, a beauty. Listen, Jesus is your king there are a lot of counterfeit kings out there who are demanding your loyalty. They will crush you. You might say, No one's telling you what to do, but it won't produce flourishing. It won't produce that deeper positive freedom. Trinity, would you take his yoke? It's light. Would you take his burden? It's easy. He is working in us why don't we all take psalm 2 allow psalm 2 to get us marching all on step giving ourselves through poetry beauty to our king that's what our world needs let's pray father psalm 2 is beautiful and we it's hard it's hard language and it's confusing but we need you, Lord, to really give us, inspire us with beauty so we'd give ourselves over to Jesus, who is our king. This world in time of COVID madness needs a king who can rule, who can rule even over a pandemic. We need to know that you are reigning, and we need a heart to be given over to it. We love you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Normally I would meet you at the Lord's table. We can't do that. I long to be with you again. What I want to do is just take a minute. I want these words from Psalm 2. Let their beauty captivate you. Give yourself to this king. Don't move too quickly past this moment. I know you don't have child care, right? But give yourselves to these words. Let them enchant your heart. Let this poetry move you to new loyalty to him. Amen.